So I'm going to give you an update on cardiopulmonary resuscitation. So in the next 20-30 minutes I'm going to talk a little bit about outcomes, the importance of bystander CPR. I'm going to go through the ALS algorithm but only the bits I think are interesting. Defibrillation, drugs and post-resuscitation care. So what about outcomes? So Believe it or not, in-hospital outcomes for cardiac arrest have been improving over time. This is US data, but UK data is not as good quality at the moment. It will be, and it shows similar. Instance of, so, so, so there's been a gradual increase to about 18-odd percent overall, PEAA systole 14%, and PFVT 40%. So there's... What this graph doesn't show is the incidence of in-hospital cardiac arrests has been falling. About Only about one in five arrests at VFVT, and most of them are asystole PEA. <clears throat> and most of these are still ward arrests or in patients who've had deterioration. What about UK data? So UK data, there is a national cardiac arrest audit, which Derryford is part of, but... I, see, I think about half the units in the southwest belong to, run by the Resuscitation Council and ICNARC. And the most recent data set that's being looked at showed there was about 24,000-25,000 arrests, and this is from about 150 <coughs> hospitals, and the overall survival was 18.4%, which is almost <coughs> identical to that US number that I showed you on the slide before. And about 16, 17% were VFVT with a 50% survival and PEA and asystoles didn't do as well, but similar sorts of numbers. And the big difference between the US and the UK cardiac arrest audit is that if I told you over two-thirds of those American arrests took place in <coughs> monitored care units, so ICUs, CCUs, HDUs, and only a small proportion took place. So sticking monitoring on people in the States is actually very common, but resuscitating them and their outcomes aren't that much better. What about variation? So this is not risk-adjusted or anything, but basically from 148 hospitals, there's 16,000 cardiac arrests, and there's huge variation between the number of arrests per thousand admissions. And this low end, I think, is children's hospitals. North Bristol's somewhere in there. And I don't know what, who the high end ones are. But there is huge variation between hospitals. And some of this may be due to how they count their admissions. You know, do you count, if you have an obstetric unit and you deliver 5,000 babies, is that 10,000 admissions? You know, because you've delivered 5,000 mums and 5,000, but you know, there's the denominator data needs often causes of variability. What about, I'm not going to talk a lot about strategies to improve outcome from in-hospital arrest. Gary Smith in Portsmouth, who's done things like the alert course and things, put together this chain of prevention, the importance of education, monitoring and recognition. So there's the National Early Warning Scoring System or a local early warning scoring system early escalation, calling for help and a response. And the response could be some sorts of treatment interventions or probably more, 
more commonly now is DNA CPR decisions. So in most hospitals, about 80 to 90% of people who die, die because they've got some sort of end-of-life care plan or a DNA CPR decision. And only a small proportion of patients die because they've had a cardiac arrest and failed CPR. What about out of hospital? This is the most recent London Ambulance Service data. And again, they've shown a marked improvement in cardiac arrest <coughs> outcomes. And that is for witnessed VFRS. So if someone has a collapse, gets early CPR, and the first recorded rhythm is VF, they get shocked, 30-odd percent outcome. And their overall outcomes have also been improving over time. And the thing of interest about this is that only about 15% of arrests are witnessed VF arrests. About three-quarters of arrests occur in the home, often unwitnessed. So if the ambulance service gets called to 60,000 arrests about in the UK each year, they start CPR in about 25,000 of them, and about between 5 and 10% of them leave home alive. And if you look at the people who survive at the end, both in hospital and out of hospital, if you manage to get out of hospital, you've about 80% of people go back home or to where they came from, and you know, about one in five end up in a sort of needing a higher level of care. And we don't have good data on how many go back to work and back to their previous level, because and that's something that needs more work. Just going to show you data. This is data from Denmark, and again, they've shown improvement over time. And this is non-shockable rhythms overall, and this is again VF. And they showed a big increase in 2005. And in 2005 in Denmark, they started teaching CPR to all school children. And what they also did is give them all one of these little mini ends to take home and teach their mum and dad. Yeah, CPR and their brothers and sisters. And so bystander CPR rates, which in the UK are about one in three, went up to about one in two in Denmark. They also made it that if you, when you went for your theory test for your driving license, you also had to pass a CPR <coughs> exam. And they did that about here. And now they're doing some work. So Denmark seeing big incremental rises in CPR outcomes for salvageable type people, people who've had a sudden cardiac arrest. And there's probably about 20-odd thousand of those in the UK. <coughs> so what are we doing in the UK? So you know, with the BHF, there's been the hands-only CPR campaign with Vinnie Jones. Have people seen that? Now, next week, who watches Dancing on Ice? No one. So <laughs> on, on Sunday night, there's going to be a new Vinnie Jones ad during the main commercial break in Dancing on Ice. Surprise. So, so, so there will be one. And, and it, will, it will probably go viral because it's quite interesting and different. We're also quite lucky in that we had, or unlucky, we had Fabrice Moamba have a cardiac arrest and he survived and he had 70, 80 minutes of CPR and he had you know, ICD, etc. And he's been doing a lot of work with the BHF Resource Council lobbying. And there's quite a lot of work going on in increasing CPR training in schools and to lay people just to get that 
one in three bystander CPR rate up in the UK, because every country that's increased it. So in Norway, it's about 75-80% bystander CPR rates. And they have, if you get to hospital, you've got, you've got quite a good chance of, you know, they have about a 50% survival for some of the, you know, witness monitored cardiac or witnessed arrests in the community in places like Stavanger, Oslo, because everybody knows CPR and they have a lot more AEDs. So I think we'll hear more of that. And it's one of those areas where, because so many people die, the government and NHS England are looking at, you know, doing more public health type things. Why A, decrease cardiac arrest and B, improve survival when it does happen. Okay, let's go on to the ALS algorithm. And there's a whole list of things in the box that you do during CPR. So I'm going to go through some of these. And the first one is chest compressions. So I go to a lot of cardiac arrests where people are doing loads of stuff and the chest compressions are poor. And, and it's normally, and the number of times I've seen team leaders go, who's never done chest compressions before? Do you want to have a go? Or they'll, they'll get, they'll have these great big six footers standing around and they'll have the bed high and the smallest person doing chest compressions and, and the same person will do chest compressions for whole arrest when you, yeah, when you sort of do it. So 30 to 2, 5 to 6 centimeters, complete re recoil, maintain quality, minimal interruption, switch every two minutes to avoid decay. And I've, I've got people were using the term fatigue. So whenever I go to someone, are you okay? They always say they feel fine, you know, or I can go. No one ever wants to stop doing their chest compressions. You know, I think they're doing great. But if you ever have, if you ever monitor them, people's compression quality decays over a few minutes, even when they think they're doing great compressions. So you need to substitute people out and, Big strong people do better compressions than small ones. So you want to line up some big people to do them. Yeah. Just, just the way it's got to be. And the reason it's important is, is that lots of work has shown people who have a higher coronary perfusion pressure during CPR have better outcomes. And I'm not going to go into science, but if you stick in an art line, central line, other monitors during CPR, you can measure this. And, the reason for that is quite simple, because you're doing chest compressions, you stop, it falls. You're doing chest compressions, you stop, it falls. Good quality chest compressions makes it higher. Minimal pause, pauses makes it fall rapidly. If you do continuous compressions, they maintain a good highest coronary perfusion pressure. Higher coronary perfusion pressures, better outcomes. And I'll give you some more data to support that in a second. And you can get feedback devices. So lots of companies sell gizmos, gadgets, things you stick on your defib that tell you to push harder, deeper, faster, etc. And I always remember the first time one of these came out, one of the companies invited, <coughs> and it's in the States, and they had some very soft female voice on there, and they go, we've got this great bit of kit, and it was just like, harder, harder, you know, <laughs> and, and, and it was a, it was, it was a group of Scandinavian, and they didn't see why, they couldn't work out why everybody was laughing in the audience. <laughs> 
So that's why, you know, it's normally fairly dull voice and it's an electronic, you know, more, more a Stephen Hawking type voice on most of them now. But deeper, harder, faster is better. What about a bit of kit that is used a lot in anaesthesia and critical care? Entidal CO2 monitoring or waveform capnography. So you've got the patient, you've got a tracheal tube in them, you connect up a little side stream analyzer and it monitors the CO2 coming out of the lungs. And you can only get CO2 coming out of the lungs if you have blood flow through the heart, through the lungs, and the CO2 diffusing out. So if someone has a cardiac arrest and it's recent and you start CPR, when you ventilate, you see you see an entidal CO2 waveform. You do better quality chest compressions and the entidal CO2 value goes up. And then you're doing your CPR and you're doing your shock and you're doing your two minutes of CPR and during the CPR you suddenly see it shoot up. And that probably tells you you've got an out output at the end of that two minutes. And so four reasons capnography may be useful. Confirming tracheal tube position, maybe improving the quality of chest compression, possibly indicating ROSC during CPR. So if you were doing CPR for two minutes and you're about to give a milligram of adrenaline and the entire CO2 shoots up, you may go, hang on a sec, we'll just wait to see if there's a pulse at the end of that two minutes. And the last one is, clearly, if you do lots of good stuff and the entire value stays low, the chances are the patient will do badly. But I don't know what the magic number is or the sweet spot, so that needs more work. So it may be a good prognostic tool during CPR, but you're doing great chest compressions, you're following the algorithm, and the numbers still stay low. I thought this is quite interesting. So they're already using capnography in, um, in the States for cardiac arrest, and this was the... Uh, and... and, and Okay, so we've done, we've done gadgets and gizmos for quality of CPR. What about, what about ventricular fibrillation? And you don't see many waveforms like this because most people, if they're monitored, they get resuscitated before they go through this. So this is a halter monitor, a recording of someone who's had a VF arrest and died. And, uh, basically they're ticking along, they're going to VT, it goes into VF over, three or four minutes, three or four minutes, and it goes to asystole. Yeah? So, so there is a window of opportunity in untreated sudden cardiac death due to a primary arrhythmia. Yeah? You've got there's a several minute, but there's about a 10 minute window where you can hopefully start CPR and give someone a shock and save their lives. And more importantly, this. Some people have talked about the, you know, what are the optimal ways of treating VF? And if you get VF early, normally it responds to a shock, so early defibrillation. If you get to the patient at several minutes into their cardiac arrest, they probably need CPR plus shocks. And if you get to them way down the line where things are going bad, they probably need adrenaline, CPR, shocks and more fancy stuff that may or may not work because your survival rapidly falls in that time window. And it, myocardial energy is my way of covering a lot of science, which I don't understand. 
Now, in terms of shock success, this group in uh, in Chicago, they they have those feedback device monitors and they collected lots of data on cardiac arrests and they looked at depth of chest compressions before shocks were given and the better the chest compression depth the more likely the shock was going to be successful so good quality chest compressions your shocks more likely to work yeah crappy chest compressions your shocks less likely to work yeah and that was so all their shocks they didn't have many yeah and but animal studies show the same and this next slide is important the effect of the pre-shock pause so the pre-shock pause is you're doing chest compressions you stop and you look at the monitor yeah oh what's that and you have a think and you say it's vf then you go oh who can use the defib and someone fiddles around with it and then you give the shock and there's been about a 30 second gap and the shock didn't work, and you start your CPR. So what what lots of studies, and this is just a good graph, shows is that the longer your pre-shock pause, the less likely the shock is to work. So every five seconds of safety checks and doing stuff means your shock's not going to work. So great safe shock, but it didn't work. So that's why... You know, the current guidelines have gone into minimizing that pre-shock pause. So good quality chest compressions, whack on the pads. <coughs> so you're doing your chest, here's your VF, you're doing your chest compressions, you're planning first, you plan a brief pause to look at the rhythm. So you analyze, you see it's VF, you restart chest compressions and you charge, you do a brief planned pause, you give the shock, and you restart chest compression. So you're minimizing hands-off times to under a second. And if it's well choreographed and planned, it's easy to do. So if you're doing good chest quality chest compressions, you've got time to plan and organize this and make it just happen well. So there's never any rush in giving a shock in that you've always got five or ten seconds to plan to make it, you know, make it all great. What about reversible causes? So we talked about VF and those bits. The four H's and the four T's. And again, if you've got someone in a rhythm or a non-shockable rhythm, and you, you've got to work through these reversible causes. And, you know, some things like hypoxia, making sure oxygen's going in and out, looking for bleeding, measuring gases, measuring temperature, etc. But the thing that's probably coming in that's becoming more and more useful is doing focused echo and ultrasound in the peri-arrest patients. And again, it's feasible to do this with a minimal pause and hands-off time. And there's some things that you can look for quite quickly. So it's quite easy. If someone's got a big pericardial tamponade, it's probably something that's the easiest thing to learn, you know fluid around the heart. And often when you do an echo in someone who's had a PEA arrest with tamponade, and I saw this a few weeks ago, you know, the heart's still moving, and you can see a collection of fluid or blood or whatever around the heart. And then you can also see how far to go with your needle and use it to drain it, etc. Yeah, so doing that, and you can acquire these images in quite short, you know, short, you can record them and look at them offline while CPR's going. And Clearly, in this arrest, they were all very interested. <laughs> what about drugs? Well, 
All of them are always sort of in the guidelines. Atropine's been taken out because it probably doesn't add much to adrenaline. But oxygen, yes. Someone has a cardiac arrest, oxygen levels deplete. Giving them an oxygen is a good idea. But and currently, during CPR, we want everybody to get 100% oxygen because that's the quickest way of getting tissue levels up. But we don't, we're not sure what the exact perfect dose is because too much oxygen may be bad, just as too little oxygen does. So at the moment, 100%. What about adrenaline? We all give adrenaline during CPR because <coughs> it does things that help increase coronary perfusion pressure. So you give someone adrenaline, you, during CPR, you get an increase in systemic vascular resistance, you do a chest compression, more blood goes up to the brain and down the coronary arteries. And the thing with adrenaline is, is if you look at the data that's available, and there's not been many good, there's only been one randomised trial that was stopped early in Australia because the paramedics weren't happy giving anybody placebo. So when they started the study, all the ambulance services signed up to it. But then people were like, hang on, we're not going to an arrest and not giving adrenaline. So they had to stop the trial early, etc. So, but all the observational data shows that if you get adrenaline, you're more likely to get an outcome in terms of improving ROSC. So you get a heartbeat, but you may then subsequently die anyway because of irreversible brain injury or something. So there's equipoise on adrenaline on whether it helps or not. And if I was, if I was going to tell you, I've got this great idea for cardiac arrest. We've got this drug, adrenaline, and we're going to give everybody one milligram and we'll just give it every four minutes because it sounds about right. <laughs> You'd all think I was crazy, but we do. And if you, and we'd give the same to a 40 kilo person and a 120 kilo person and we'll sort of give it peripherally in cardiac arrest and it might get to the heart, it might not, you know. <laughs> so, so there needs to be trials on adrenaline. And the odd drones the same in that the only trial done showed that in out-of-hospital VF cardiac arrest, if you had more than three shocks and you got an amiodrone, it may help restart your heart. But it didn't give more good survivors at the end of VA. So it got more ROSC, but not more good survivors. And the interesting thing, if you look at all the data, the people in the... The earlier you got amiodrone, you did well. And the earlier you got placebo, you did well. And that meant, it could have just meant that if someone was clever enough to think about adrenaline, uh, amiodrone, they were probably quite good at resuscitation. You know, you're getting a paramedic and teasing all that out of a study. So again, the amiodrone study is happening again with more patients and better design to look at whether it helps. Faster access. So if you want to give a drug, intraosseous in the leg or in the humerus or even in the manubrium or sternum is... Yeah, an effective way of giving drugs during CPR and better than giving them down the tube. What about airway? The best option varies according to the patient and the rescuer, the time point. And so you need to use the airway option that works best for you until expert help arrives. So if you're a lay person, someone arrests and you can't do mouth to mouth, chest compressions alone are okay. If you know how to do mouth-to-mouth, -mouth, that's good. If you know how to use a pocket mask, that's good. And if you know how to intubate, that's good. But you should only use 
the one that works best in your hands. And if your patients had a primary respiratory arrest, ventilation is probably helpful for them. And things like regurgitation, one in an aspiration, one in three people have aspiration in cardiac arrest. And in most of those cases, it happens before any CPR happens. So early, so tracheal intubation doesn't often prevent it because it's already sort of happened. So whether that affects the outcome, we don't know. So again, there's equipoise on airway in cardiac arrest because you'd think tracheal intubation would be better. And clearly, if you get ROSC and you're comatose, tracheal intubation is part of your post-resuscitation care. So whether you wait until the end of the arrest or do it during the arrest, I don't know. And most people end up getting a bit of everything. They get a bit of nothing, a bit of, a bit of some sort of bagging, a bit of some sort of intubation, and so on. So it's very hard to know. Post-resuscitation care. So, so there's four or five things that if you get an output back... So clearly the guy who's monitored on CCU goes into VF, gets shocked, gets an output, he wait, gets, comes around, he's wondered what's happened and he feels okay and everybody else is really worried. But people who've had a longer rest who are comatose, you know, often have ischemic reperfusion injury, inflammatory response, whatever caused their arrest. You get this, for heart stops, it takes up to about 48 to 72 hours to get back to <coughs> how it was, irrespective of whether you've had an MI or not. And clearly the brain injury you get from having a period of ischemia reperfusion. I'm just going to say something about ischemia reperfusion injury. So if your heart stops, your cells start dying. But nearly all the cells in your body and all the organs you can take out, do something to them and put them in someone else and they'll work. You know, so you can transplant kidneys, livers, etc. And they have a warm ischemic time and a cold ischemic time. So the tissues haven't died. And then when you start resuscitating them, they start dying quicker. Which is a bit odd, because you get this apoptosis. So you give oxygen and nutrients to an ischemic cell. And it starts dying more quickly. And then you do, and you have to do all your ITU to slow down that cellular death and secondary injury. So, so there's a lot of work going on on how you can slow that down and preserve tissues. Systemic inflammatory response is like a sepsis syndrome and so on. So if you have someone who's had an MI post-cardiac arrest, they do need to go to the cath lab, and that's in the NICE guidelines, and even if they're comatose. And this is patients admitted with a query primary cardiac arrest to a Paris hospital. These are all ventilated and... If you look at the ECG, it's not always obvious, but they had 134 had, who had STEMIs on their ECGs. 74% um, had successful PCI. But over ones who didn't have a STEMI, a quarter had a successful PCI. So quite a lot of the people who have a query primary cardiac arrest end up having a culprit lesion or an acute coronary syndrome. And having early PCI, <laughs> even if you're comatose, improves the outcome. What about the brain? Yeah, so there's four or five things that are important. So you've got ROSC. Giving a lot of oxygen is bad for the brain and giving too little is bad. So you just need to control the oxygen. It's a bit like throwing more wood on a fire if you've got some sort of inflammation going on and giving them more oxygen. Making sure you've got a decent 
blood pressure, controlling glucose, controlling seizures, and temperature management. And I'm just going to say a little bit about temperature management because there's been a recent study. So comatose patients, this group in Scandinavia compared 33 with 36 in about 900 patients randomised after an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest from which it had ROSC. They used a variety of cooling methods. This was the 33 group, so they were cooled for about 24 hours on the ITU, and this was the 36 group. And you can't, may not be able to read it, but basically they had 50% survival, 50% mortality in one group, 48% in the other. So there was no difference, and there was no difference in complications or any of the secondary endpoints. And the thing of interest with this is that if you look at the original study in 2002 on which we based the guidelines, they didn't control temperature in the control group. So the control group were all probably hyperthermic. And in this group, so I've just lined up the temperature. The temperature, so, so this paper suggests patients still need temperature control. We're just not sure what the optimum is. And 36 is probably as good as 33, but there's probably some people, there may be a dose response curve in the, the more ischemia reperfusion injury you've got, the longer you need or the more you need. Okay, so you've got your guy on ICU and you've done all that and you've turned off his sedation. He ain't moving or he's doing some funny twitching or something. What, what do you do next? So this is the traditional 2006 guideline. Exclude major confounders. Make sure that if they're brainstem deaf, Get them, you know, do brainstem testing and day one if they've got myoclonus, etc. And basically, the problem with this is, is that there was a self-fulfilling prophecy on all these studies that have designed current guidelines because people have looked at the results and they thought, well, that's a bad result. We'll withdraw treatment on them. And then people have then written papers saying all the people who had that bad result died. Yeah. So, so, so you can't use the data that we've got very effectively to say things aren't good. And, and hospitals that wait the longest before they withdraw treatment have the most survivors in this group. So it's probably you gain a sort of extra survivor a day or something if you wait an extra day or something. So, yeah, that's because cooling will delay clearance of sedative drugs. If you've done two or three days of cooling, it takes longer to wake up. Having a ischemic brain means to take longer to wake up, etc. So to prognosticate, not too early, avoid self-fulfilling prophecy, use lots of different ways, and probably waiting 72 hours after you've stopped temperature control, and use a combination of clinical, pupil, pupil and corneal, electrophysiological, somatosensory evoked potentials, EEGs, and and possibly imaging. So I'm, go I'm going to come to an end because I haven't got time to talk about all these things, predicting and preventing cardiac arrest, DNA CPR decisions and treatment escalation plans, that's a huge topic. Lot there's lots of people out there in whom CPR is not going to work when they die at the end of their natural die. Mechanical CPR devices, so lots of trials going on things like the Lucas device or the Autopulse. And to me, they just have sort of boutique indications. You know, if you're in a 
doing CPR in a helicopter or a cath lab or, you know, on top of a mountain. They may be useful, but for run-of-the-mill type things. Again, eCPR is extracorporeal CPR where you put people on a bypass type machine. And again, boutique indications, but there's some parts of the world where they're now doing pre-hospital eCPR, emergency department eCPR, and getting better outcomes than traditional CPR. And remote ischemia, ischemic post-conditioning, which I think is the most exciting thing. But, but basically, so if you, get, if you get a pig and put them in cardiac arrest, and during CPR, you make their leg ischemic for five minutes and then unischemic, etc., peri-arrest, you get much higher survival rates because your, your ischemia and releasing ischemia releases protective factors that protect distant organisms and organs and people have done that in so people have started doing the studies now in heart surgery on remote ischemic preconditioning and post conditioning there's studies in kidney transplant going on and at southmead we, and nbt we've just done a study on um, aortic aneurysm repair so when you do the cross clamp the whole if you lower half of your body's ischemic to protect the kidneys, etc. And the animal data shows it might protect against prolonged ischemic insults. It's, and, and people have done it for cath lab and PCI. There's quite a lot of work on, on that. So if you, when I went to the American Heart Association meeting in November in Dallas, nearly, there's loads of sessions on this and people were selling the cuffs and kit to do it. So that's a, the other hot topic. Okay, so in summary, survival is improving, bystander CPR increases survival, chest compressions are the most important thing I've talked about, thinking about echo and things like that, importance of primary PCI post-cardiac arrest, and the need to rethink targeted temperature management, and be cautious with prognostication. Okay, thank you.